Shalom, everyone. Shalom. As most of you know, uh, this is the third week of the Lent as we meditate on the suffering and the death of Jesus Christ, as we follow His path, uh, identifying with the cross, uh, may we continue to meditate on His crucifixion and also His resurrection. Today, the text that I am about to expound on is a text that I believe will be so relevant to all of you. You will know what I mean when we actually read the text. But the text comes from Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, to chapter 6, verse 9. And this entire text here, this portion of the book of Ephesians, has been such a controversial text that uh, all throughout history of the church, and particularly in the last two or three centuries in the history of the church, this text has been a point of controversy, a point of contention. First of all, we are very familiar with the concept of women's right, right to vote, right to leadership, and so forth. But in the general patriarchal society, the male-dominated society, this is a foreign language, this foreign concept. And our text deals with that issue. And so what does Paul mean by what he says in this text? Also, what about the abolition of slavery, which is taken for granted? No person should be discriminated based upon the pigmentation of their skin, color. No one should be discriminated for the class in which they belong. But since the late 18th century, there has been a strong movement of abolitionism against slavery. This led to the American Civil War, as you know, in the mid-19th century. What about the child labor law that was established during the time of the Industrial Revolution in the late 18th century and also in the mid-19th century? And the law had to be made so that they could restrict the employment and the abuse of child workers. Like our little kids here, they used to work and labor all day long in a very, very um, inhumane type of conditions. And so there had to be laws that would protect the little children. But in general, there has been a sort of a, a protest in the political realm, protest against monarchy, dictatorship, and any form of tyranny. And that resulted in the American Revolution, as you know, and also following that, the French Revolution. And since then, we've been advocating, in human society in general, the more of an egalitarian, more of a democratized way of living and way of operating as a nation. So what I see in these various little motifs and themes that I just shared with you is the general problem regarding authority, regarding leadership, regarding headship. And this is exactly what I want to address today and maybe next two weeks. And then, of course, we will celebrate the, the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus and, uh, and the Easter, the resurrection of our Lord Jesus. So let's get right 
down into this text. And I know some of you women, our sisters, this has been a text that has bothered you, uh, that has caused you to really question what this means and how this applies to you as a woman today. So we'll begin with that in verse 21 of chapter 5. We'll read all the way to chapter 6, verse 9. So let's read this out loud together. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, Husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with the promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each of one of you for whatever good they do whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Amen. I hope you enjoy that reading. But for most people, well, I wouldn't say most people, there are women, there are sometimes children who have parents, whom they cannot quite so respect, that it would be very difficult for them to embrace the simple teaching that Apostle seems to be uh, giving to us. And what about workers in general who are under abusive uh, uh, leadership of their bosses? And uh, this text would be very difficult for them to embrace wholeheartedly. But anyway, I'm going to try to expound on this text in the next few weeks so that it will liberate you 
it will give you a sense of understanding as to what Paul is getting at. Obviously, from the start, I can say Paul is not advocating something that would be an oppressive type of system. Of course not. Uh, he's always talking about liberty in the Holy Spirit and all the wonderful blessings that we have in Christ. He can't be saying this is a way to restrict women, this is a way to restrict children and restrict those people who are uh, being employed by their bosses. But let me give you a little bit of a context. We've been studying... Uh, recently about our personal life of virtue, that we must excel in a particular type of virtues that is in the likeness of Jesus Christ. And recently we studied about the virtue of purity. We must have purity of heart, especially abstaining from all kinds of sexual immoralities, the things that have to do with uh, financial misdealings, aiming for fame and status, all of these things are stumbling blocks for us. And we must be pure of all of that. We must also be transparent, open, honest. I see that this to be an amazing virtue. If we can be honest and sincere with one another, that will solve so many of the social problems that we have today. Wisdom, having wisdom, having deep sense of understanding, not only in terms of facts and knowledge, but understanding how. How can we work things out? How can we bring forth a better, better quality life? And then finally, spiritfulness. But in order to define what spiritfulness is, we return back to the text in chapter 5, verses 18 to 21. Shall we look at this text, which was the text that was given to us right before this text that we're dealing with today? Paul says, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, just reading this text in NIV we can't really make a sense as to, a uh, perfect sense as to the grammatic structure of this text. And that's why we need to return back to the original language and read this text in Greek, if you can. But the scholars are very clear about this. They're basically saying that in this text, there are only two commandments. I know it sounds, sounds like there are a few other commandments, like verse 21. According to NIV, it sounds like a command. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. But in the original Greek, there are only two imperatives or commands here. First is a negative command. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. The second is a positive command. Rather, be filled with the Spirit. Don't get drunk. Rather, be filled with the Spirit. This is what Apostle Paul is saying. Why is he using the analogy or the metaphor of getting drunk in contrast to being filled with the Holy Spirit? Because being drunk, drunkenness, is very, very much opposite of the concept of being filled with the Holy Spirit. I know some of you, if you have a, a sort of a charismatic background, you've been taught 
that being filled with the Holy Spirit is like getting drunk and losing control. But is it? Drunkenness is a form of a, a depressant. Or rather, alcohol is a depressant. It is not a stimulant. You know, when you get depressed and down, and you need to be pepped up, you drink alcohol. But actually, that causes you to feel even more down. And you lose a sense of control, and that leads to oftentimes lose sense of morality, and sometimes dehumanizing uh, behavior. But when Apostle Paul says, you, might be, you must be filled with the Spirit, He's talking about a proactive way of life. That you are somehow filled, you're energized, you're awakened, you're fully alert of the situation even more than ever before. You're not losing your mind. You're gaining your mind back. But the important thing is here, after these two commands, there are five participles here. And what are participles? As you recall back to, you know, the great school days, and I'm sure our teacher Jim can define it for us, but participle is basically uh, those verbal form which function like an adjective, okay? So uh, usually words that would end with ed or ing, in this case we'll see the words in English ending with ing. Thus, the command to be filled with the Spirit is actually followed by five of these participles, which refers to five applications of the command. So Apostle Paul says, be filled with the Spirit, then speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. That's the first participle. Second participle, singing. And third participle, making music or psalming, literally psalming, from your heart to the Lord. Third participle, giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the final participle is actually submitting. Here, this is not the command to submit. This is actually a participle that describes what it means to be filled with the Spirit. To be filled with the Spirit is to speak and to sing and make music, give thanks unto the Lord in such and such a way, but also submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Did you know that one of the greatest signs and evidences of being filled with the Holy Spirit is learning how to submit to each other? That's the greatest sign. We haven't learned that in the charismatic tradition. I come from that tradition. We talk about being filled with the Holy Spirit to do wonders and miracles and, and engage in great uh, speech of prophecy and all these amazing things that we need the power of the Holy Spirit for. But actually, I need more power of the Holy Spirit to bring myself under control and submit myself to others around me. That's more difficult than anything I could possibly think of. And yet, Paul says exactly Submitting or subjecting yourself to others is very much an aspect of being filled with the Holy Spirit. And then he goes on and talks about these, this social structure. He talks about the marital relationship between husband and wife, the family relationship between parents and children, 
and the work relationship between masters and slaves. Now, this was the traditional social structure in those days, the Greco-Roman world. And this is fully affirmed by the Jewish tradition as well. So Paul is simply taking what was given in those days without making any issue of that. But we'll see that without making an issue of the structure, he is in a subtle way subverting the whole concept of authoritarianism or dictatorship that is associated with this kind of system. So let's take this system to the for granted. So that in marriage, wives must submit to their husbands. This was given. This was understood. Now we may protest in today's society, wait a minute, why do women have to submit to men? Even in our own family. Shouldn't my husband submit to me? Well, but the thing is, Paul is writing in his context, in his days, to the first century, first century audience. And he's saying, wives, according to our tradition, you should submit to your husbands. Then in the family setting children, you should submit to your parents. In the work area, slaves, you must submit to your masters. This is taken for granted. There's no question about this matter. So, sometimes we, in the process of reading texts like this, and we also see in the, uh, the book of Colossians, a very similar type of text like this, and uh, we complain about the fact that why didn't Paul protest against slavery? This would have been an opportune time to say, God has spoken. He has given me a revelation to topple this system of slavery. Why didn't he just say one word that would liberate women? For that matter, why didn't Jesus say something like that and say, I think women should be ordained in the future in my church? That would have settled the matter. But Jesus didn't do that. Paul didn't do that. That was not their concern at the time. And the seasons and the time will come in the future for that to happen. But during that time, it was urgent that the gospel, the pure gospel, has to be propagated. And the infant church has to be established everywhere just so that they can survive the oppression of the Roman Empire. And so this was not a matter of the greatest concern at the time, nor was Paul so much interested in the concept like egalitarianism or democratization that we are so familiar with. For us, it's a matter of life and death if human rights and equality are not advocated. But in those days, that was not the main thing. It was salvation of their souls. And then becoming Christians, them being incorporated into the body of Christ, that was the essential thing. And Paul wanted to get that message clearly known to others. But what is significant about the way Paul works with his message and the way he delivers the message is so revolutionary. It's so revolutionary. 
Basically, Paul redefines the modus operandi in the context of the particular roles that are given. He doesn't debate about the roles. He doesn't debate about the structure. He says, this is it. This is the system. This is the tradition. But he redefines everything. And this will have implications for both those who are in the position of leadership and those who are under leadership. Let's talk about those who are under authority, according to this system. So for a moment, for next three weeks, please, ladies, try to kind of empty your mind of the modern day view of women's right, okay? And say you're living in those days when you had no right. And let's start with that. Because as long as you're thinking, but, 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 you, you can't even get started with this text. You have to let go of that temporarily. And do not judge me as thinking that I am advocating some kind of male chauvinistic, uh, patriarchal way of thinking. I am not. I told you so, for so many times that I believe in total equality in terms of men and women in leadership at church, at my family. That's my view. There are others in the body of Christ who uh, take these texts seemingly and literally thinking that this is what this text is really saying. And in context, yes. In context, yes. But having said that, I will not try to be too apologetic about this, and I will just uh, expound it. And at the end of this, I hope that you'll be enlightened and say, wow, I didn't know that this was the way Paul was working with the text. Okay, let's talk about those who are under authority. Let's take wives in verse 22 of chapter 5. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as you do to the Lord. Okay, submitting to your husband, that's the traditional way to go. But Paul qualifies that by saying, I don't want you to just submit to your husband because you have to. Because this is the routine thing. And this is the you know, dutiful thing. I want you to do it as you would do it unto the Lord. You know how to submit to the Lord, don't you? Can you submit to your husband as you would submit to the Lord? What? Treat this husband of mine like I would uh, uh, do it unto the Lord? I'm sure some of these women in the church in Ephesus, their husbands were godly. And so godly that they resemble Christ. And so it was easy for women to humble themselves and submit to their husband's wishes. But I'm sure there were women who had husbands who were perhaps non-believing and who, husbands who are immature, husbands who deserved not such a treatment as me serving that husband of mine. And yet, Paul says, it doesn't matter what your husband is like. Can you regard him as though he is Christ and can you serve the husband? Now, this is not to say that continue to submit to a husband who is abusive to you and, and constantly putting you down and, and damning you. This is not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is, no husbands are perfect. And the question now is, are you willing to submit to that imperfect husband as you submit unto the Lord? This is what Paul is saying. Then to children, 
in chapter 6, verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Yeah, the tradition says, obey your parents. This is our structure. This is the way we've been doing it. But Paul qualifies by saying, in the Lord, in the Lord. Sometimes it's difficult to submit yourself to your parents because your parents are insensitive. Because your parents are perhaps opposing your faith. Oh, sometimes your parents are too controlling. But it doesn't matter. Can you do it in the Lord? Now, once again, this is not to say constantly be a good, good little boy and good little girl, even though you've come of age, you know, you're in your 20s and 30s and 40s and still like mommy says, daddy says. No, we're not talking about that. We're not talking about that kind of codependency. Okay. But in general, even though your parents are not quite uh, perfect as you, as you would like them to be perfect, would you be willing to do that in the Lord? And so he qualifies that by saying in the Lord. In chapter 6, verse 5, he's now addressing to the slaves. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Wow! Think about it. First of all, being a slave is already in a state of being sort of locked down where the, the master practically can do anything to mistreat you. But think about applying this text to your working situation where you're a boss, where you're an employer, where the, the head of that organization is not necessarily so perfect. Could be mistreating you. Could be oppressing you. And yet, Paul says, can you obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of your heart just as you would obey Christ? That is a revolutionary thing. He's, he's not saying obey because you have to, you have no choice. Because this is a rule, this is a duty. And we have to serve the state. We have to serve the social structure. This is not what he's saying. He's saying, can you do it? with that newfound faith and love that you have for Jesus Christ, and with the Holy Spirit who, who is filling you up to be able and capable of doing this. You're so much bigger than what you think you are. You see, it's the puny people who will not be able to rise above that and operate this way. They can only do it out of duty. They can only do it because they are victims. But Paul is not saying that you're a victim. Paul said, you're a victor. You know the Lord. Now in the Lord, you are able to do these things. So this is what he says about those who are under authority. But now what does it say to those who are in authority? This is also revolutionary, maybe even more revolutionary than what he said to those who are under authority. Let's see what he has to say now. In chapter 5, verse 25, he says to the husbands, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. What does this mean? Jesus was willing to bleed and die and suffer for the sake of the church. I want you to love your wife that way, Apostle Paul says. Now, which do you think is more difficult for you to submit 
to someone or to be willing to die for that someone. No, I'd rather die. I don't want to submit. I know some people have so much ego, you know. I'd rather die than submit to that tyrant of a husband of a mine. Or... So you see, this is a revolutionary statement. This has never been ever heard in the Roman Empire. You know, the wives, the only thing the husbands were required to do in those days for the wives is provide for them, take care of them, protect them. Don't have to come every night and talk with them. You know, hear them out. You know, intimately embrace them. They don't have to. Men were known for sexual immorality in those days. They would have a wife, but it was a customary thing to have a mistress at the side. So wife was to simply take care of the home, take care of the children, and bear the children for men. Men were not obligated to do anything. They were supposed to do the minimal thing. And yet Paul says, from the minimal to the maximum, be like Christ to your wife. Be willing to die and shed your blood for your wife. Wow, I think this would have just blown those men. They have mine away. And then in chapter 6, verse 4, he's now addressing to the fathers. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. In two weeks, I'll address this issue of what does it mean to exasperate your children? Don't frustrate your children. Don't get them all you know, frustrated and, and feeling like oppressed and, and, and they're about to burst. Do not do that. Do not do that. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. That's your job, to raise them up in the Lord, to nurture them. And according to the Jewish tradition, you know, the children are not parents' possessions like the Confucianist system. In the Confucianist system, we owe our debt to the ancestors, but not in the Jewish tradition. In the Jewish tradition, children belong to the Lord, and therefore God is giving children as a loan unto us. And we're to raise them up, then hand them back to the Lord. And we cannot oppress the children. We must think of them as precious treasures that God has entrusted into our hands. So again, this is a very revolutionary thing. Fathers don't have to do this. Fathers don't have to say, son, daughter, what's, what's frustrating you? What's in your mind? He doesn't have to spend all the time. That's for mom to do. Or they can have special counselor to come and address those issues. But no, the parents are supposed to do that. And I think this is something that we need to take very seriously because today so many young people are exasperated. And a lot of times they go the wrong way and later they say it's because of, of my mom, the controlling mom. She just, you know, she would not listen to me. She's so insensitive, hardened. And, you know, I just burst forth in rebellion one day. A father who's never there, who never talked to me. And then there's just anger and frustration and depression will be resident in them, and then they go the wrong way. In chapter 6, verse 9, now he's addressing to the masters. Listen to what he's saying. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. In what same way? As the slaves were supposed to obey their masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart. You're supposed to show them respect, and you're supposed to... Uh, 
operate with a sense of fear. Fear before God that these are the people that God has entrusted into your hands. And do it with sincerity of your heart. Do not threaten them. Since you know that he who is both the master and yours is in heaven and there is no favoritism with him. In other words, God is watching. You're going to be held accountable for the way you treat the people who are working for you. So what I see here is a, a, a balanced perspective. First of all, Paul is acknowledging the fact that we must humbly submit to the God-given authorities. To parents, to spiritual leaders, to, to a husband in, in the home structure, four wives, to our bosses, to our leaders. Show submission to these God-given authorities. But at the same time, you don't sense anything like dictatorship or tyranny or oppression in any of these texts, which are often associated with authority figures. Neither does the text give the ground for dominance in voicing or decision making. And people use this text and say, see, I have the final say. I'm the head and I make the final decision. There's no room for that here. If you read this with openness. So there's no room for abuse of power, exploitation of position, injustice toward weak. Rather, there's a sense of greater responsibility and acknowledgement of the other's rights. And so this calls for redefinition of headship. That's exactly what Paul is saying. Yes, husband, you're the head. Yes, parents, you're the head. Yes, masters, you're the head. That's the structure. But I want to redefine in the light of Christ's revelation what it means to be truly an authoritative figure, truly to be the head over a body. And headship is not so much associated with governing and ruling and dominating. Headship is related to responsibility, to nurture and to take care and to protect and treasure. You know, in the Spider-Man's uh, animation series, not animation series, uh, the, the Marvel series, um, I'm impressed by what Spider-Man's uncle before he died spoke to Spider-Man about his great power. What did he say? With great power comes what? Great responsibility. I thought that sounded so cheesy then, but I used that, that slogan everywhere. Okay, so you have authority, husbands. You have authority, parents. You have authority, old bosses or masters over others. Then you are that much more responsible. And you will be that much more held accountable before the presence of the Lord. So Paul is saying here, yes, headship. But now let's define that headship. Let's qualify that headship. And here, the headship is in the business of restoring a sense of dignity, of womanhood, childhood, and servanthood. Repeat after me. Womanhood, womanhood. Childhood. childhood, servanthood. servanthood. Those who are usually neglected in the society. 
those who for ages have been oppressed by the society. And Paul is saying, let's show dignity to them. Let's show honor to them. And in that sense, he's also talking about the equality of all people before God, regardless of gender or age or class or status or position or race or culture. He's been talking about that already, but now he's elaborating upon that in the context which will be so relevant to all of us. And Paul is giving us a very simple guiding principle that is all things should be done once again in the Lord. Could you repeat after me? In the Lord. Lord. Everything is in the Lord. That is before His presence. In Latin it is coram deo, that is before His face, before His presence. Can you be accountable before the Lord? And they're operating according to the way of the Lord that is treating each other with respect and honor. And this leads to our primary verse from which I decide to take the title from. And that is verse 21 of chapter 5. Before he talks about all this structure and the relation between husbands and wives and parents and children and, and the masters and slaves, he starts everything off. He caps it off with the statement in verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That means just forget about rest of the others and don't get into all this nitty-gritty stuff and argue over this or that. The, the topic sentence is here in verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And as I mentioned over and over This is referring to being filled with the Holy Spirit. Are you filled in the Holy Spirit? Then submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. If you do that, it doesn't matter what position you're in. If you're a husband, then submit to your wife. Not in the traditional way like submission, submission, but be willing to die for your wife. Ultimately, you're submitting to the wife in the process. And by the way, it's very interesting because in verse 22, according to NIV, states it in a verb. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands. But in the original Greek, there's no verb there. It says, wives, yourselves to your own husbands. That means it is understood that it is connected to the previous verse of submitting to one another out of the reverence for Christ. And then he says, wives, you see? Now, submit to your husbands out of reverence for Christ. This is what Apostle Paul is saying. So this concept of mutual submission is so important. Instead of always talking about who's the head, who's the boss, what's my right, who has the, the leverage, you know, in the Korean way system, you know, who's the cop, who's the ur, who is in charge here. No, 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 none of that stuff. That is not Christ-like at all. Christ himself did not do that either in his relationship with his disciples, as you recall. Jesus said in Matthew 20, 28, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And then the night before uh, 
he was to be crucified, Jesus was in the upper room with his disciples and before breaking bread and having that last meal, he did one special act described in John chapter 13. He took off his outer garment and, you know, put a towel around his waist, got down on his knees and got a basin of water. He started washing his disciples' feet. And then he said, Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If Jesus did that, and then of course he died for us, then who are we to say that we can do less than that? In Philippians 2, verses 5 to 8, Apostle Paul understood this very clearly. He said, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. What kind of mindset is that? Mindset of humility and servitude. Mindset of submission. Who being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. In other words, he did not insist upon his rights. He had all the rights. He had all the power. All the privilege, and yet he was willing to relinquish that. And rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death. That's submission to death, even the cruel death on the cross. So in one statement, I guess what I'm trying to say is that the primary evidence of spiritfulness in the likeness of Jesus Christ is none other than humility and submission. In Christianity, if you don't have humility, you're not willing to submit. And I'm not talking about just submitting to God. I'm talking about submitting to people around you. And I'm not talking about just submitting to good people, but even bad people. Because, let's face it, we're going to live in this world surrounded by a lot of bad people. Right, children? Wouldn't it be great if everyone was good and loving and kind and then then you can submit to them? But the Bible says, no, even if there are bad people there, even if there are immature people there, insensitive people there, can we be like Jesus to them? It's as simple as that. Now, if that is true, then let's go back to our context. As far as I see, all of our people here are, I think, basically good. We're not perfect, but I think basically good people who really try to live out the Christian life. We shouldn't have any problem abiding by this principle that Paul has given us about submission, mutual submission. Should we? Because this should be applied even out there where the whole system is oppressive and the whole system is imperfect and sometimes even anti-Christian. We're going to have to exercise this in the Lord. Then how much more should we take this at face value and exercise them at home? 
husbands to their wives, wives to their husbands, parents to their children, children to their parents, those who are in the head or authority figure to those who are underneath them, and vice versa. Now, having said this, I will qualify this statement with another statement. There comes a time for what we call civil disobedience. There comes a time when you need to rebuke even the leaders and those who are in the position of authority. That takes discernment, but we should never ever do that lightly. That takes consensus voice, that takes the whole systematic process that you have to go through. And as some of you know, our whole school with the professors, in their relationship with the president and so forth, we went through exactly that process. Because we know the scripture. We have all these New Testament scholars who will be pointing that out to us so that there will be no hypocrisy in this process. We went through all that. But when the leadership goes wrong, that's going to affect the body in the wrong, then there has to be a place for bold standing up to speak. But even there, it's not about my rights. It's about rights of others who are being victimized, who are being exploited, who are being taken advantage of. We have to fight for them. But I don't think there's much room for my own right, my own insistence. Now, having said that, I'm going to just go back to that one final statement, mutual submission out of reverence for Christ. This is what we need to embrace in our minds and hearts as we go through this short series where I'll be talking about husband-wife relationship next week and then the week after parents-children relationship and also boss and the employee relationship and so forth. Amen? I hope you look forward to it because this is going to be a very relevant topic for all of us. Let's pray.